0: Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. 1 Peter, chapter 3. We are, uh, again, going to be looking at verses 18 to 22. You remember from last week, we really uh, especially focused... On the uh, verses uh, in, in verse 20 and, uh, and then in 21 in particular, dealing with uh, baptism and its, its correspondence to Noah and what it means and in what sense Peter is talking about it saving us through uh, Jesus Christ. But we didn't really get to get into the sort of larger picture, the larger idea. Of, uh, of Peter's argument here and how he is encouraging these uh, suffering and persecuted Christians in this uh, this very section of scripture. And so we're going to look at this again uh, this morning and focus most especially on the, the big picture of Christ's exaltation and his victory over all authorities and how that is to be a, a great encouragement uh, to the Christian who is, Is under affliction. And so again, we'll read from uh, uh, chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, and then down to verse 22. So the Apostle Peter writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says beginning in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Let's go again. To the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, it is clear from your word that we see in First Peter, that we see throughout the New Testament, that many of us have perhaps even experienced in our own lives that to walk faithfully with Christ, will bring some measure of suffering, affliction, and persecution. Whether that be ridicule and reviling, or whether that ultimately be death. That is in your hands, that is in accordance with your determination, but you have promised us that it will come if we follow Christ. And so, Lord, when that, when that happens, whenever we are in the midst of affliction, it is very easy for us to simply look at the pain, look at the affliction, and to not set our eyes on Christ, who is our hope. And if we do not look to Christ, Lord, it is very easy to despair and to live in this life without hope and to be tempted to give up following Christ altogether. And so Lord, I pray for us all this morning that as we consider Your Word that the Apostle Peter wrote here, that that as he is writing to encourage Christians to to look at the exalted Christ and not just their sufferings, that it would strengthen us to be a people who are faithful to Jesus no matter what the consequences in the world may be. So teach us from Your Word, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, this past week, the kids and I finished the classic Tolkien book, uh, The Hobbit, while Leah was away out of town. And uh, it had been, of course, uh, quite a long time uh, since I had personally read the book. But as we went through it, I was just reminded about how uh, masterfully Tolkien is able to describe and create these uh, imaginative worlds with with language. There's a moment uh, in the book when the hobbit, Bilbo, along with the dwarves, that he's on a journey with, come to a a certain forest called Mirkwood. And uh, besides Mirkwood being this kind of dangerous and and dark forest where not even a single ray of sunlight can come through, this is also the moment in the journey where the wizard Gandalf has to, to leave Bilbo and the dwarves behind because he has some other business that he has to take care of. And so as they, they enter into this dark forest of Mirkwood, they're, they're already full of despair over losing their companion, the wizard, who was like their great protector. Well, the forest, of course, doesn't help that despair that they have Either. As they make their way through it, there are times when it is so dark that they can't even see their hands in front of them as they're they're waving their hands. And and and, and there's a, there's one point in particular in the middle of the night, or at least what they thought was the middle of the night, because it was hard to tell. It was so dark that they were. They were looking around, and even though they can't see their own hand, they could see these incredibly evil and malicious-looking eyes just staring at them in the dark. As they traveled through the woods for what seemed like ages, they then began running low on food. And, of course, if you're familiar with the Hobbit, for a Hobbit, that is especially a a very troublesome prospect, to be running low on food food It's something I can relate to. I, I was reading last night that the hobbits eat six times a day. And I'm like, well, that's, that's, that's what I do as well. So, so the prospect of losing a, a meal is, is already a greatly troubling. And so at a certain point, the dwarves decide to send Bilbo to climb into the top of a tree, uh, hoping that as he looked out over the forest he'd be able to see where it ended and and where they should go on their journey. So Bilbo climbs up and and for a moment as he gets to the top, he's he's refreshed by finally being able to see and feel the, the warmth of the sun. He sees these beautiful black emperor butterflies flying around. But then his, his eyes begin to adjust, and, and as he looks around at the forest, he can't see an end. It just keeps on going. There's no edge at all in sight. And So he ends up climbing down the tree and was full of even more despair. But then the narrator tells us that they were actually not far off from the edge of the forest. And he says, if Bilbo had had the sense to see it, the tree that he had climbed, though it was tall in itself, was standing near the bottom of a wide valley, so that from its top, the trees seemed to swell up all around like the edges of a great tree bowl, and he could not expect to see how far the forest lasted. He says, still he did not see this and climbed down full of despair. So of course, they they were not very far away from the edge of the forest. It was perhaps no longer than a, a day's journey away. And if they had known just how close they were from coming to the end, and if they had been able to see which direction to go in, then even though they still had to hike through the forest, they wouldn't have been consumed by this despair. Their countenance would have changed. Their hearts would have been Encouraged, and their courage would have been strengthened to continue on in the journey now with much greater hope knowing that the end is very near. Well, friends, in the context of our passage this morning we find Peter here addressing Christians who are in a sense in the middle of the dark forest of the world making their way to, ultimately, the promised land and the presence of God. And in this forest, Christians are being met with all kinds of trials that could lead them to utter despair. There are some Christian wives who are married to unbelieving pagan husbands who see their life with Christ as Despicable and disgraceful and shameful. There are some Christian slaves who serve in unbelieving households where the masters there are incredibly harsh. There are, of course, many other Christians that we've seen as well well, who are suffering from slander and being ridiculed probably by the very people they had known for much of their own lives, and they're being maligned by the world for no other reason than that they are being obedient to Christ. Many of them have no voice, they have no authority, they have no position that they can use to alleviate their plight, and they find themselves strangely at odds with the world that they used to be perfectly comfortable in. And they know that while they are journeying through this dark forest, they cannot respond in kind to the world by repaying evil with more evil. But they must continue, rather, to do good, and they must carry a cross just as their Lord Jesus did. At a certain point, if if all you see around you is darkness, if if you try to climb to the top of the trees and you look around and all you see is more suffering, more pain, more affliction, more heartaches to come, at a certain point, it's going to be very easy for utter despair to just settle in to the heart. And so it's as if here in this passage, Peter takes us to the very end of the journey. He shows us the one who has gone before us. He shows us the one who has had an even greater and a more dangerous journey than our own. And He shows us that this Christ has conquered all of the great powers of the dark forest. He has achieved utter victory over all. He shows us here where the edge of the forest is, and He shows us ultimately how to get there Ourselves. This passage that we've just read is ultimately about the victory of Jesus Christ over all the powers of darkness. And by raising our eyes up and to the future, by, by showing us the One who sits even now on the throne, by showing us the One to whom all powers and all authorities in heaven and on earth and under the earth have been subjected, Peter is helping us all to see that we are not far away from the edge of the forest. It is only a little while longer. We have no reason to despair Because if we go just a little bit further, we will come to the end and we will see the sun again and we will feel the warmth of the light of the Son of God shining upon us. It is not much further. And so there is much, of course, that that is going on here in this passage that that raises all kinds of interpretive questions, right? That There's no doubt about that as we read through this passage. But I don't, as we get into this, I don't want you to miss the main point here. The, the main picture that Peter is showing us. The passage begins in verse 18 with the sufferings of Christ which atoned for our sins. But it ends, if you look at verse 22, with the exaltation of Christ. With His being seated at the right hand of God. With all powers being subjected to Him. and So the main point in the argument that Peter is making is that the sufferings that Christ endured, and of course we being united to Him in baptism, the sufferings that we also may endure, ultimately end in His victory over sin and death and all authorities and by, by being united to Him, it ends in our victory with Him over those same powers. So, I want to, I want to break this point down for you and, and we're going to do so this morning in, in three different So, the first thing that we'll consider is the purpose for Christ's own sufferings. Why did He suffer? And then second, we'll look at His proclamation of victory over all authorities. And then lastly, how this secures our own hope for victory. Let's consider, first of all, the purpose of Christ's own sufferings. Why did Jesus suffer? If you look at verse 18, verse 18, of course, picks up Peter has been exhorting Christians to continue to do good, to to bless those who revile us and slander us, and to always be ready to, to give an answer to preach the Gospel of hope to others. And it says in verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. It's at this point that Peter then grounds this statement in the example of Christ's own sufferings and subsequent glory. Right, how, how can it be better? How can it be better, Peter, for us to suffer for doing good? Well, Peter says, consider the work of Christ. Consider what He did. Consider His sufferings. What did His sufferings accomplish? What did? did they bring about? Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Christ suffered to bring us to the living God. The sufferings of Christ, in other words, were not meaningless. They weren't without purpose. In fact, they had a very specific purpose. It was the sufferings of Christ, it was His persecution, and ultimately, of course, His death on the cross that brings us to God. Now, that, of course, does not mean that the sufferings of Christians then achieve the same kind of purpose. In fact, we we know that they don't. The, The sufferings of Christ are very unique in this way. His sufferings are unlike the sufferings that any other Christian would endure. But the point in the larger context of the argument is to remind believers that God is not absent In our own sufferings. He is, in fact, carrying out His good purposes in and through our sufferings. And if you you remember from chapter 1 in verse 7, Peter says there that these various grievous trials that these present Christians are suffering is so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is refining and shaping and sharpening our faith through sufferings And this will ultimately result in a grand reward. A a crown of salvation. Of of glory. And Christ is the example par excellence. the, The chief and the greatest example of one who suffers and in and through those very sufferings achieves a great victory and accomplishes a great purpose, and receives a great reward. And again, what we see here is that Christ's sufferings achieve this great purpose of bringing us sinners to God. His death was a substitutionary death. His death was a death Our place, Peter says here, the righteous for the unrighteous. Sometimes today you hear Christians speaking dismissively about Christ's death as a substitutionary death where he bears the wrath of God on behalf of guilty sinners in his own flesh. That we who deserve that very wrath might be forgiven and have life through him. They they dismiss this. They dismiss it as a, this is just like a medieval idea that was a later development. This is really not the the core and center of the gospel. God would would never pour out his wrath on the Son, that'd be mean. That's cruel. That's evil itself. Friends, if you ever hear that, that is the most mistaken idea you could ever come across. It is the substitutionary death of Christ that is the very heart of the Gospel. It is the centerpiece apart from Christ dying and bearing the wrath of God on our behalf, we're still in our sins. There is no hope. There is no life with God. There is no reconciliation. There is only death and just judgment. The entire Old Testament itself lays the groundwork for this very central truth as we see, especially in the sacrificial system. We see there that there is no hope at all that a sinful people might be able to stand in the presence of a holy God on their own merits, on their own cleanliness. We are all unclean. We are all before God guilty because of our sin. We deserve death for our rebellion. And the only way that that death-deserving sinner can come near to God is if a life has been given on their behalf. and In Christ, the Lamb of God, that life has, in fact, been given. And now, through Him, and only through Him, we come to God. Now, because His life and His blood has been shed to wash away the sins of guilty sinners, if we have been cleansed by His blood, if His life has been given on our behalf, it is then that we can now approach the throne room of God and the Holy of Holies. It is is now the case only that that it's as if we are entering behind the veil of the Holy of Holies in the temple and the only way to come through is through the blood of Christ. And that has been given. Christ's sufferings achieved that for us. Again, as Peter says, the righteous for the unrighteous. I I might add to that as well that Jesus only saves the unrighteous. If you believe, perhaps, that you are fairly decent if you are righteous, if you can stand on your own merits before God, if if God can look at you and and you believe that that you can stand and and He will say, yeah, you're you're great. You're perfect. You have mistakes. There's flaws. But come on in. Enter into my very presence. You are sadly mistaken. The heart is full full of iniquity. It is a factory of idols. And one of the idols that it constantly creates are idols that are made in our own image. The idea that we, we are righteous before God. This is idolatrous thinking. This is clear unbelief and rejection of the very Word of God and what God has said about men. Christ does not save the righteous. He saves the unrighteous. So if you are here this morning and you believe yourself to be righteous, the first thing that you ought to do is come to an end of yourself. Repent as you look and see your own sin before the holiness of God. And then you will have the righteous on behalf of the unrighteous. For you. Now, second, we not only see here the purpose of Christ's sufferings in bringing us to God, but we also see here the proclamation by Christ Himself of His victory over all authorities. It, it, his victory parade, if you will. Now, as we move into the last part of verse 18 and then into verse 19, we immediately come upon some statements that Peter makes that have caused interpreters throughout the history of the church to give all kinds of explanations as to what exactly Peter means. In fact, Martin Luther once said of this text, he said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament." so that I do not know for a certain just what Peter means. You can always appreciate a bit of honesty. We ought to be cautious, therefore, in being overly dogmatic in the precise meaning, especially when all of the various interpretations, for the most part, equally affirm the central gospel truths about Christ's death, burial, and and resurrection. They mainly just differ on which stage of Christ's work is being described here, and exactly what He's doing uh, in each. But, some of the interpretive difficulties have to do with things like these spirits in prison. In verse 19. Who are they? What is Peter referring to? What what did Christ excuse me, Christ proclaimed to them? What did he declare to these spirits in prison? When did he proclaim the proclaim this to him? And and what does this have to do with Noah? And and what is the role of the spirit in verse 18? And I don't think it's it's fitting to get bogged down in all of the nuances of every single Question: You can certainly see more details for yourself if you want. You can look through various commentaries that speak on these various matters, and we can always talk about these things as, as well. But basically, as Christians have read this passage over the years and answered these questions themselves, they have, they've offered at least three or four main explanations as to what Peter means here. Some have argued that Peter is describing the fact that Christ in the Spirit was preaching to the unbelieving world through Noah in Noah's day, calling the the unbelievers of Noah's day to repent and believe in the Gospel as it had been revealed through Noah at the time. This, This was an interpretation that probably first came up with Augustine. This really has very little to do with the context and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. So most now have dismissed it. Others have argued that Peter here is speaking about Christ's work in his descent to the dead. His work in between his death and resurrection on Holy Saturday. When Christ was made alive in the Spirit, Peter is referring to his soul being made alive in the spiritual realm. And the spirits in prison refers to the rebellious angels of Genesis 6 that are referred to there as the sons of God who were having relationships with human women and were subsequently judged and imprisoned. Christ here is said to have gone in the Spirit to these rebellious angels and proclaimed His victory over them on Holy Saturday. Now, I find much in this second interpretation to be quite correct, except its emphasis on Christ's descent to the dead which I do believe is something that is taught in Scripture and is, of course, taught historically, but this is not one of those texts where, where it's taught. So this leads me to what I find to be the most compelling explanation as to what the meaning is, which is that here, Peter is describing Christ's proclamation of victory over the rebellious heavenly spiritual powers, the rebellious angels, and he's doing so at his resurrection and exaltation. That's when this proclamation is made. And there's, there's several reasons for this, so we're going to get into the weeds for a moment. You need to look at your Bibles and see what we are looking at in particular. So, the first is that the end of verse 18 is contrasting the death and a resurrection of Christ. Jesus, Peter says, was put to death in the flesh. His, his body, in the likeness of sinful flesh, was killed at the cross. And this is then contrasted with Him being made alive. And in virtually every single occasion the word that is used here to to be made alive is found in the New Testament refers to the resurrection. And so He's made alive. He's, He's raised from the dead by the Spirit. It was God by the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. So there's a contrast here between His death And his resurrection. Second, the close connection 19 has with verse 22 leads me to conclude that Jesus' resurrection and exaltation is what Peter is here speaking of. Verse 19 says, in a very wooden way, in which also, in which also, but to make the the connection between verse 19 and 18 more clear. We could also say, by whom also. And then this next phrase, he went, is actually the same exact word that is used if you look at verse 22, where Peter says, speaking of Christ, who has gone. So so here, it reads literally, Christ was made alive by the Spirit, by whom also, having gone, He proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And So the question is really, having gone where? Where did Christ go? And the answer is really supplied when you get to verse 22. And the same exact word is used yet again. Jesus Christ is the one who went or who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. So, so, so Peter here is thinking about Christ's resurrection and exaltation. And often in the Bible, when Christ's exaltation is spoken of, What is included in that exaltation is the fact that not only have all earthly powers been subjected to His rule, but even all heavenly spiritual powers are under His rule as the victorious King. It's as if when the the biblical authors are thinking of Jesus' exaltation at the right hand of God, they are simultaneously thinking about all rebellious powers now being under his feet. So in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, for example, Jesus says, "Of course, there, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me." In Philippians chapter two verses nine. To 11. Paul there is also speaking about the exaltation of Christ after his humiliation. And notice what he says. He says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. Likewise, where Paul is speaking of the exaltation of Christ, that that God raised Christ from the dead, Paul says that, that God seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And it is the same here for the Apostle Peter. He is speaking here of Christ's exaltation which immediately makes him consider Christ's exaltation even over Rebellious spiritual powers. Which then leads to the third reason. why well, I would argue that verses 18 and 19 especially refers to Christ proclaiming His victory over these rebellious powers at His exaltation. There is a very close parallel in both Second Peter chapter 2 verses 4 and 6 and Jude 6 to 7 and in both of those texts Peter and Jude are referring to the disobedient angels who are called sons of God in Genesis 6 who rebelled against God's rule and engaged in sexual perversion with women and Jude specifically likens their rebellion to that of Sodom and Gomorrah and the sexual perversion that was committed there. And he says that these angels have now been kept in chains. So Jude 6 and 7 says this. It says, And the angels did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He has kept, Jesus, God, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. These rebellious angels of Noah's day are the spirits in prison that Peter is speaking of here in chapter 3. And the point that he's making is that when Christ was raised from the dead and exalted at God's right hand, He was given all dominion and authority. He was given authority to judge the living and the dead. And in His exaltation, He proclaimed and declared that authority and His judgments even over the spiritual powers. Which leads us, last of all, Why this is relevant and important for us to know. Why is Peter making this point here? What's he getting at? The reason, very simply, is that Christ's own sufferings which resulted ultimately in His exaltation over all authorities On earth, in heaven, and under the earth, is what secures our own hope for victory over these same powers. In other words, if the Son of God suffered and was subsequently saved and exalted, then we being united to Him in baptism and saved through His resurrection will also be exalted with Him. In fact, that is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 already speaks of Christians as those who have been raised from the dead and seated together with Christ in the heavenly place. Noah and his family are brought up, among other reasons, because like these suffering Christians of Peter's day, they were, they were but a few. A few who were righteous in a world that had gone totally mad with sin. And what did God do for them? He, he saved them. Right? He saved them through His judgments and brought them safely through to a new creation. Jesus Christ, of course, likewise was despised and rejected by the world. He came to His own, and His own received Him not. He was stricken. He was afflicted. He was oppressed. He was put to death like a lamb led to slaughter. What did God do for him? He raised him from the dead and he seated him at His right hand. The sufferings and the death of Christ were not the final word. And the importance of that for believers who may be in the midst of affliction is that the afflictions and the sufferings that you are enduring now are not the last word. Just as Christ reigns, you also will reign with Him. And as we look at the two examples in particular especially in a world that has gone mad with sin and as we fix our gaze upon Christ in particular and remember his own sufferings and his subsequent glories it is as if peter here is bringing us out of the middle of the book of history where all we see is the unknowns and the trials and the dangerous paths chapter after chapter. And He's bringing us to the conclusion and showing us this is how the book ends. This is how history comes to final conclusion. This is the end. Christ is on the throne. All has been subjected to the King of kings. All authority has been given to Him. Every knee shall be made to bow before Him. Every tongue will confess that He is indeed the Lord. The wicked will be judged. They will no longer be free to corrupt the world or to pervert justice or to tempt with rebellion any longer. Sin will be eradicated and the people of Jesus Christ who are called by His name will reign together with Him forever. It is a glorious ending. There is no better ending. Sin and evil vanquished. Death and Hades thrown into the lake of fire. Righteousness and justice rolling down like a river. Sorrow gone. Lament turned to joy. Weeping into singing. And heaven and earth meet once again. If you know how the story ends, if you know where the edge of the dark forest of Mirkwood is to be found, and you know that arriving there will not be much longer, then persevering through suffering becomes that much more easier. Does it not? You can look beyond the immediate affliction You are given eyes to see over the tallest and darkest of trees. Despair disappears and hope is able then to reign. If you know with confidence how the story will end, the only way The only way that that you can get through those afflictions is is by understanding the conclusion. And as you understand the conclusion, it is then and it is only then that you can join in imitating with the apostles and with Christ Himself who was able to look beyond the afflictions and consider them as, as light, momentary. As he's thinking about his own afflictions that he's endured as an Apostle. Rejection. Beatings. Shipwrecks. Sicknesses. Having to face wild beasts in the wilderness. As he's thinking about all the scars that he has Received and following Christ. He looks beyond them, and he's able to say this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they pass away. They hear, they blow away like the wind. But the things that are unseen are eternal. To live the Christian life faithfully, boldly, courageously, we must be anchored in eternity. And we must have a confident knowledge of the end. Peter, in this text, points us to that end. He raises our eyes upwards to the exaltation of Christ and Him who is seated on the throne with all authorities and powers having been subjected to Him. And He does so so that by seeing the end of Christ's sufferings we too might persevere through whatever sufferings lay in our path and to be able to do so with great hope knowing that the edge of the forest is only a day's journey away so we walk and we go through and we get scars And we get afflictions, but we do not despair. We hope, we look to Christ, and Christ will bring us to the end. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is sometimes popular cliche to say that someone can be too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. And yet, Lord, we know from Your Word and we know from the great examples that have gone before us throughout the history of the church, the apostles themselves that it is only those who are incredibly eternally heavenly-minded that will be of any earthly good. And so Lord, I pray for us that as we heed your word and as we receive it with meekness, as Peter causes our eyes to look upward, Christ who is seated on the throne, that we likewise will be able to discern our own end, that as we trust in Him, as we are united to Him as a bride to a bridegroom, the exaltation of Christ is a foretaste of what we too will receive if we persevere to the end. And so, Lord, I pray that you would keep us. or that we would look to Jesus and then looking to Him would have all the more courage and boldness to be obedient to you in the face of persecution, in the face of afflictions, whether they be from men, whether they be from sicknesses, that we would be able to be faithful to you and at last receive the grand reward of eternal salvation. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.